those of you who have been here for a while, you know that as the morning goes on, we kind of hopefully hone in closer and closer to the meaning of the text. We start at the beginning talking about what we observe from the text and then we, what we can learn from it and then how later on we can apply from it. And this teaching point is to try to help make that bridge between the meaning of the text to the application of the text. How do we live in light of it? And so before we even get into kind of teaching on the passage, I want to make one thing clear. I want to talk through one issue, and it's on this whiteboard here. We want to understand or talk through how we understand this rescue of the Israelites and how we can apply the rescue of the Israelites to our lives today. Because as I talked, for those of you who are here the first couple of weeks, I said that there's a danger if we go right from the text of Scripture and say, what does it mean to me today? And so we can read the Scripture and say, God will rescue Israel. And what that means to me today is that God will eliminate all my problems if I just trust in him, right? We sometimes make that leap. We say God will rescue. That means God will eliminate all my problems. But if we actually go through the passage, the kind of pathway that we've been suggesting all the way along, we realize that this isn't necessarily, this wasn't even the case for Israel, right? Because what happened to them? Well, God saved them from slavery, but they still had to live a normal life after that. Right? They still wandered in the wilderness and they had hunger and thirst and issues and relationships that they had to sort out. And so this, this saving work that God did saved them from one kingdom to another, saved them from one God to another, saved them from kind of an unrelationship with him to a relationship with him. But they still had to walk through regular life after that. It didn't eliminate every single problem in their life. It eliminated a huge problem in the fact that they were slaves to a foreign king but it didn't eliminate everything. And so as we make parallels between our life and their life, we need to realize that it's the same for us. We are saved, if we put our trust in Jesus Christ and on his saving work on our behalf, we are saved from that, saver, that slavery that we would have to sin. I see some of you writing these down and you can do this, but I also took a picture of it I'm gonna send out. So don't feel you have to write it down if you don't want to. We are, if we put our trust in Christ, it says in, in scripture, and we'll talk about this as we go along, that we are transferred from one kingdom to another. We're, under, we, we're transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light, from a slavery to Satan to a slavery to God, which is a beautiful slavery. And so this rescue happens to us in terms of our, our position within the kingdom of God changes, but we still have to live a normal life. We don't have all our problems necessarily eliminated because we're saved by God. Uh, we still have to walk through the regular aches and pains and groans of life on this world. And that's what Kendra talked about last week, that we still have circumstances that we have to face. The beauty is, once we've gone through this rescue, once we've put our faith in Christ, once we know who Jesus is, once we have um, that new kind of citizenship in God's kingdom, we have a new hope as we walk through circumstances. We have a new, um, a, a new deliverer that we can count on, the presence of God. We can um, rely on new resources. And that's the same for the people of Israel. Once they're saved from slavery, life's problems don't go away, but they have a relationship with God that then can guide them and can give them guidance as to how to walk through those situations. And so I just wanna have that picture in your mind that when I talk about, because we're gonna talk about God rescuing his people, we're not promising that as we trust in God, that everything's gonna be completely rosy and all of our problems are gonna go away because that's not realistic, that's not life. We are here on this broken world and God is bringing us to that place where we will have no pain and no suffering and no sorrow and no tears in eternity. But in the meantime, we have to kind of live. We have to wrestle this out. And so God will give us the strength to persevere. He will give us victory over certain things, but 
In this lifetime, we will not have that perfect eternity or else what would we have to look forward to? And sometimes we don't value this enough. We think that the ultimate thing in our life would be if God will eliminate all my problems here and now. We don't realize that actually the ultimate thing in our life, sometimes these problems that we have here and now are preparing us for eternity when there's gonna be nothing. No problems, no sin, no sorrow. And so what the most horrible thing would be to have a great life now and have eternity without God. That would be way worse, right? Because then you have these problems forever. <laughs> you have all kinds of stuff that is being separated from God forever. We have problems now, but they pre prepare us for that eternal relationship with Christ, with being in his kingdom forever. Second Corinthians 4 verse 7 says this, or 17, our light and momentary troubles, so I'm not saying that all of our troubles are um, not important, but they're momentary. Everything that we face has a time limit, an end. These are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. Everything that we're facing now is achieving for us, if we keep following God in the midst of us, it's achieving for us that eternal glory so that we can have eternity with God without any of the suffering. And so we wanna keep that time frame in mind. Eternity will not happen now on earth, but if we can persevere with God through the end, we have this eternal glory to look forward to, an eternity without the pain and the suffering and that separation. So our rescue is from a kingdom of darkness to a kingdom of light and for a future hope in God's kingdom. So let's pray that we keep that in mind as we read this passage and then we'll get into the text. Lord, I thank you so much that you staked your life on rescuing us that you knew that our plight without you was, was her, is horrific, that we needed you. And so you came to earth as a man, you walked this earth, you lived a perfect life, you died for our sins so that we could have eternity with you. We could have an eternity free from pain and free from suffering. And so Father, I just pray for each person in this room that whatever they're facing in the here and now, whatever circumstances are difficult for them now, that they will persevere through them with you so that they can reach the other side and that they can recognize um, the, just the amazing glory that you've given us in rescuing us from sin and from a slavery to Satan. Lord, we thank you for our citizenship in your kingdom and that you give us all the opportunities um, for a bright and a future hope. We pray these things in your name, Jesus. Amen. As I mentioned before, um, Exodus 1 and 2 was setting up the narrative of Exodus, of the rest of the book, and we got introduced to the people of Israel, who they were, what their plight was, and we got introduced a little bit to Moses, this fact that he would be a future deliverer. And at the very end of Exodus 2, we got a glimpse of the fact that God knew all this was going on, but we haven't really got an idea in the book of Exodus yet as to who this God is. Who is this God that's going to rescue his people. And so that's what we get in chapter three. We get a picture of who God is. And so what we're going to look at it right now is how do we know that God will rescue his people? What clues are there in this text that God's giving us that he's going to rescue his people? And how does that transform our thinking about how God's going to rescue us or whether or not he'll rescue us, whether he's capable of rescuing us? So I want to think about kind of the two tension that happens when we, when we watch rescue stories. Uh, those of you who watched the news at the end of June, beginning of July this year, there was a bunch of kids that were in a, stranded in a cave in Thailand. Remember that story? And the whole world was watching this rescue story. Were they actually going to come out of that situation? 
And as we watched that story, we saw like thousands of people gathering and we knew that there's a great will to rescue them. People were on the side. They wanted this to happen. But what was the concern of all of us watching? Why were we pinned to the TV? We weren't sure if it would actually happen, if they could have success, right? We didn't know if the people could control the outcome of the situation. And there actually was one of the divers that died because he lost oxygen and was not able to perform this rescue. And so when we read rescue stories, one of the, one of the tension points is, is the people doing the rescue, are they actually in control of the situation? The second thing that makes a rescue story suspenseful or a different kind of rescue story is when you think of watching something like Spider-Man or Batman or Superman, I don't know if you're superhero movies, but in those stories, often the time is, or the situation is that we know this person has a superpower, but we just don't know if they're gonna use it. Like it's like, come on Superman, like get out of your Clark Kent outfit and actually do something, right? Lois Lane is hanging from the Eiffel Tower by her fingernails, why are you not there? And so we have this picture in our mind of like a rescue stress is we know this guy has all the power, but we don't actually know if he cares. Like, is he actually gonna do anything to rescue the situation? And so when we think of rescue stories, those two elements are kind of always in our heads. Does the rescuer care? Does the rescuer have control? And so when we think of this story about God, this passage is answering those two questions. Does God care? What is his character like? And does he have control? Can he actually bring about the situation that he is um, promising that he will do? So we wanna think of those two things as we go through this passage. This is a story about rescue. And what does it teach us about God's character? What does it teach us about his control? So we're gonna look through scripture passages in this text and then in other texts and see what we can learn so that our confidence, our trust, would be placed more firmly in Christ, in God who is our rescuer. So God's character, his, first of all we wanna learn from this text or what we learn from this text is that God is a personal God. In verse six, uh, Exodus three verse six, he says, God says, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. In verse 15, God says this again. God also said to Moses, say to the Israelites, Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. And in verse 18, he says, Yahweh, the God of the Hebrews, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews. And so we learn from this text that God is a personal God that he attaches himself to people and to individuals. And this would have been a, just a mind-blowing idea for people in the, those days because they had gods would be in charge of like territories. And so you'd be connected to a land. And so if you went from Egypt to Canaan, you weren't sure if your god would go with you because there was a god that was in Egypt and then there was a god that was in Canaan and they were attached to a specific spot and a location. And the nations would war against each other and be a war against the gods. But God's saying, I'm not, in a particular land. I'm not only in the United States. I'm not only with the Republicans or with the Conservatives or with the Liberals or with the Democrats. I'm not tied to any kind of political party or any kind of land. I am a personal God. I attach myself to people. Why is that important for us to know? Because none of us are automatically then excluded. None of us are outside of his jurisdiction. He attaches himself to people. He identifies himself with individuals, with people. So he wouldn't say, like I said, he wouldn't say, I'm the God of the United States. He'd say, I'm the God of Sheila, and I'm the God of Hilda, and I'm the God of Maria. 
and of Amanda. He's the God of specific people and he builds a relationship with them. He is intimately involved in the lives of the people that he knows. So the fact that he's personal, it doesn't mean that you can say, well, my God is like this and your God is like this and we all have our personal gods. That's not what I mean. God is personal in the fact that he's invested in people, but he has his own definition of who he is and we're gonna look through the text. He defines himself, but yet he personally attaches himself to people. So the second thing that we learn in the text is that he is proactive in the sense that he lets us know who he is. So he doesn't leave it up to us to decide who God is. He's proactive. He reaches out to people. And so um, Exodus 3, verse 7 to 10, it reads this. It says, The Lord has said, Indeed, I have seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them out, out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now go. I am sending you, Moses, to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. We understand from this passage that God is proactive, that he is initiating all these things, right? He is rescuing, he is, uh, he is seeing, he is hearing, he's concerned about them, he's bringing them up out of the land. He's not waiting for them to initiate towards him. He is proactive, he is reaching out to his people. So why? Why is he doing that? Well, Deuteronomy 7 gives us a bit of an answer. It'll be on the screen. It says this, Deuteronomy 7, verses 6 to 8 says, this is Moses talking to his people of Israel way later. He says, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you out of all the peoples of the face of the earth to be his people, his treasured possession. The Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other people, for you were the fewest of the people. So it's not because you were so great or so big. Why did he do it? But it was because the Lord loved you. And he kept, and to keep the oath he swore to your ancestors that he brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you. God reaches out to people, he's proactive to people, not because of how great they are, but because he sets his love on people. And that's something all of us need to hear and to understand. Uh, for myself, when I was younger, I don't know why, but um, my parents were loving and kind and didn't make me feel like I was a horrible person, but I grew up thinking that I was never good enough for God. And that somehow I had to attain to his worthiness. I had to attain uh, to something great if, I, if he was ever gonna save me. And I had this kind of concern in the pit of my stomach that God was always disappointed in me and that there was no way he was ever really gonna be able to rescue me because I just wasn't worthy of his love. And it wasn't until I had a son um, when I was 26, and I had a little baby lying in the crib, and he did nothing to deserve my love. He cried, he actually drove me a little crazy, he interfered with my life and all my plans, and my sleep, and all these things, and I had this amazing love for him. And why was that? Well, because he was mine. Not because of anything he had done, not because of um, any kind of added value he brought to my life, but the fact that he was mine. He was my child. And God sets his affection on us because we're his. Because we're his kids. Not because we've done anything special, not because we deserve it, 
but just because we're his. I'm gonna read a few passages just to kind of drive that home. Ephesians 1, verses three to six. It's an amazing passage. It talks about God adopting us. And it gives us a motivation again. It says, he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. Why? In love. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace. In Ephesians 2, a chapter over, it just says, as for you, as for all of us, we were dead in our transgressions and our sins. There was nothing that we could do to save ourselves. There was no worth that we had within ourselves. There was no like great shining moment that God said, that's my person because they're so amazing. We were dead in our transgressions and sins. But because of his great love for us, God who is rich in mercy made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in our transgressions. For it's by grace that you've been saved. For it's by grace that you've been saved through faith. This is not from yourselves. It is a gift of God. God is proactive. He sets his affections on people. And he reaches out to them. In Colossians, a little bit further on, it tells us again that we were dead. When we were dead in our sins and in the uncircumcision of our flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness which stood against us and condemned us. He's taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Jesus did all of this for us. We were dead. We were defenseless. We were um, indicted. It says we had a debt that we could not pay. And God took that all and nailed it to the cross. So that, it, that legal charge that stands against us is now canceled. I was teaching a group down in uh, Mexico one time about this and we took a stamp. We asked them to write down kind of the things that they thought God had against them or the things in their life that they felt shame by. And we took a stamp and it said paid for on top of all those things. And that's the image that we get here. We have the stuff, this baggage that we carry and we think it's stopping us from being in God's presence. And God says, no, I've paid for it. It's done, it's canceled. That debt is gone. And so because of that, verse 13 of Colossians 1 tells us that we should give joyful thanks to the Father because he has qualified you to share in the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of light. He has rescued us from the kingdom of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. It's not us that qualifies ourselves. God does the qualifying. And if he says we're in, no one can say that we're not. No one can shut us out from his presence. I have a friend who uh, was abused as a child for years and she carried that, even after she became a Christian, she carried that feeling of shame and worthlessness and being unqualified to be in God's presence with her for a long time. And as we studied Colossians together and she realized that it wasn't what she brought to the table but what God brought to the table, all of a sudden this weight was able to be lifted off her because she realized it was God that qualified me. I didn't bring anything great to this equation. God is the one that took away my shame, the sin that was done against me, took away all these feelings of dirt and unworthiness and he has qualified me for this um, entrance into his kingdom. He has made me his daughter. God is proactive 
he reaches out to us. He qualifies us. The people of Israel were nothing great, but in love, God set his affection on them. And so we can trust him because he is proactive, because he loves us. Psalm 101 to 5 um, says this so beautifully, and it's such a great picture of who we are and our response to this. It says, shout for joy to the Lord, all the earth. Worship the Lord with gladness. Come before him with joyful songs. Know that the Lord is God. It is he who made us, and we are his. Like my son in the crib, we, we are his. He's caring for us. It's nothing that we bring to the table. We are his people, the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise and give thanks to him and praise his name for the Lord is good and his love endures forever. His faithfulness continues through all generations. So if you're a Christian here this morning, do you understand the vastness of God's love towards you? The fact that he set his affection on you, that he has qualified you to be his son or daughter, that he's brought you into his kingdom, and that he loves you. I hope you do. I pray that you do. I pray that you do as you grow closer and closer to him. And if you're here today and you haven't decided whether or not you want to follow Christ, I want you to throw away any ideas you have from the media about who God is as a God who doesn't love and is judgmental on those who want to follow. God loves his people. He reaches out to them. He's put himself on the line over and over and over again for his people, and we see that in this passage. He is proactive. He's reaching out to you, and so respond to him if you don't yet trust in him. God's character is personal. He's not distant. He's proactive. He doesn't rely on us. He's completely in charge of the situation, reaching out to us. And he's also present with us. And so Exodus 3, 11 to 12, we see that. He is present. So Moses is questioning here. We're not going to go a lot into Moses' questions here because next week uh, when Thalia comes to teach, she's going to talk about Moses' five big objections that continue on through the passage. So we're not going to talk too much about Moses here. We're going to talk more about what this teaches us about God. But the question that Moses asks is, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And God says, I will be with you, and this will be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. Moses was concerned that the power to overcome the enemy of Israel rested on his shoulders. And we can get similarly concerned that the power to overcome the enemy of our souls the enemy of this world rests on our shoulders. And what does God say? It doesn't. Your power rests on me. I will be with you. Throughout this book, you'll see, this is like where Moses is initially introduced to God. And as we go through the chapters, you'll see his trust in God and God's power grow more and more. And as he begins to understand this, that it's not up to him, that it's up to God. And he begins to rest in the fact that God is present with him, that he is with him in the midst of these situations, that he is empowering him to speak, and that he is empowering him to do what he's called him to do. And it's something that all of us need to learn. When I came to Northview here, I was working for a couple of years under the previous women's pastor, and then when she left, uh, they asked if I would kind of take over women's ministry and just keep it going. And I thought, okay, I know how to do that. Like, I've watched it for the last two and a half years. I know 
I know what's going on, that's no problem. And then the minute that kind of transfer happened where everything rested on my shoulders, I had a complete freak out. Like I had about two months where I thought, this is gonna go totally haywire and I'm gonna be the one responsible for killing all of women's ministry at Northview <laughs> and nobody's gonna come back and everybody's gonna hate it. And I felt all of a sudden this weight of this, oh, it's all up to me. And I realized in that moment again, this is what I need to do. It's not me, it has to be, God has to have the glory. And it's his presence that's gonna sustain us. His presence that's gonna teach you as we read your word. This, it's the spirit that makes this word come alive to us. And so we can take so much confidence and it's also so humbling to realize that it's God's presence that enacts this rescue, that enables this rescue to even happen. It's not based upon us. Charles Spurgeon, he's one of the great preachers of, he's called the Prince of Preachers, one of the greatest preachers in the English language. And if you came to our Remarkable Lives class in spring, you would have heard a biography on him. But he was so scared of his own inability that every day when he would walk up to the sermon, he would just say to himself over and over again, I believe in the Holy Spirit. 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 He knew it wasn't him that was gonna do the work. It was the Holy Spirit. It was God's presence that was gonna deliver his people. So we are not all Moseses. We will not all have big burning bush experiences where God tells us exactly what our calling is and exactly what we're supposed to do. There's only two people in the whole history of the Bible that kind of had this great impact on the world. So you have Moses in the Old Testament. He ushered in a whole new realm of salvation history. And you have Jesus in the New Testament that ushered in a whole another realm of salvation history. These are unique people with unique experiences, with a unique calling from God. And all, all of us are, none of us are Moseses but yet we still have a calling from God and we still have a promise of God. And if you've been at Northview lately, you've heard Jeff speak on this passage a lot of times, Matthew 28, 18 to 20. What does it say that all of us, any of us who follow Christ, Jesus says to them, to the Christians, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit, and, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you, and surely I am with you always until the end of the age. So God gives each of us a goal, a commission to make disciples, wherever that is, our kids, at the schools that we teach, in our nieces and nephews, our neighbors, our friends, that's a job that God has given us to enact, to kind of wrestle with the slavery that this world is facing to sin and to death and to slavery to Satan. We're supposed to engage with that by sharing the gospel with these people. And the promise that we have is not that it rests on us, right? Not that it depends upon our great words and our great arguments, but the fact that God will be with us. He's present with us in this rescue. So, going back to that idea of the rescue, the tension, whether we know whether someone's character or their control is in question, this passage firmly establishes the fact that God's character is an amazing, loving rescuer. He is proactive, he is personal, he's present with his people. His character is not in question, he's not Superman. He's engaged with the people that he's saving. And so we wanna just look quickly as we end at God's control. 
So last time, Kendra talked a lot about God's control, and so I'm not going to focus on it as much because she did such an awesome job last time. But there is one new piece that we find out in this passage about God's control. How do we know that God's going to rescue us? How do we know that he is actually in control? And that is uh, his answer to Moses in Exodus 3, verse 13 to 15. So this is Moses' second question. It says this, God also said to Moses, or sorry, Moses 13. Moses said to God, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, what is his name? Then what shall I tell them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say to the Israelites, Yahweh, the Lord of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, the name you shall call me from generation to generation. So Moses finds out two information pieces here. He says to God, who are you? And God says, I am who I am. The Hebrew verb here is haya. It just means, like you think of the word I, or the verb I am. You say, I am, you are, he is, she is. That's basically the verb, just saying I am. And by saying that I am, he's saying I define myself. I am self-existent. I am who I am. I will be who I will be. I'm above your defining. I am God. But then he goes beyond that and gives us his name. And so the reason I said Yahweh instead of the Lord, if you look on the text, verse 15, God also said to Moses, say to the Israelites, the Lord, the God of your fathers, is how it reads in your text. Whenever you see L-O-R-D capitalized in the scriptures, it is actually a reference to his actual physical name. And if you look in the, in the Hebrew text, it says Yahweh. That's his physical name. It's his actual name um, that he wants to be identified by. And so I'd encourage you, if you want to, you don't have to, but as you read the text of Exodus, whenever you see the words L-O-R-D capitalized, say Yahweh instead, because it reminds us that we're talking to a personal God. He's not just a God that's kind of out there or a God that has a title of God. He's actually a person that identifies himself with a name. And so if you think of saying to somebody, I know the pastors of Northview, that's giving a title, right? The pastors. You could say, I know the God of the Hebrews. But if you say, I know Jeff or Ezra or Crystal or Thalia, you're identifying a person. You're saying their name. And so that's the difference between saying Lord and saying Yahweh. Yahweh is his name. And if we say it, it reminds us that we're talking about a person. If we say, I'm going to a doctor, or if we say, I'm going to Trent Lowen, Connie's husband, it's a difference in understanding that person's name, right? And that identity of that person. And so knowing the specific name helps us specifically identify who we're talking about. And so I'd encourage you, like I said, to say Yahweh when you see that. And it reminds us that we are talking about a person. As we look through the text, if you got to the end of your learn section, we saw that that means that he is, the, the idea of him being I am is that he is before all things, he is in the middle of all things, and he is at the end of all things. He was, he is, and he is to come. And so when you think of that in terms of his power, well, there's nothing then that's before him, nothing that's after him, nothing that is more powerful than him at this moment in time. We see that specifically in the text here because he knows the past, he knows what he promised, to the Israelites in the past, he says, I'm going to bring, out, bring you out and you're going to plunder the Egyptians and you're going to get all the gold. Well, when was that said? We read that way back in Genesis 15, right? He knows the past. He knows that relationship with them. And he knows the future. He knows what the Israelites are going to say. He knows what Pharaoh's going to say. He knows what's going to happen and what he's going to do in the future. And so he knows the future. 
So when we wonder if God can rescue us from sin, from slavery, from Satan, from everything that oppresses us, we can rest on the fact that we know his character, that he loves us, that he's reaching out to us, that he's personal, that he's proactive, and we can rest on his control, that nothing can take us out of his hands, that he has us in his grip. So I want to leave us with Ephesians 3. It's a prayer that Paul has, and his prayer is that people would actually know this truth in a way that transforms them, in a way that transforms the way they live their everyday lives. He says this, For this reason, verse 14, I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power, through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and how high and how deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. And that's my prayer for you this morning, that you would know the fullness of God's love for you. That you be rooted and established in it. And that you would know his power. Verse 20, Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray to that end. Lord, I thank you that you love us. I thank you that you reach out to us, that you are personal, that you are proactive, that you are powerful, that you are in control of this whole world. And Lord, I just pray that this knowledge would transfer deeply down into our hearts, that we would know it, that we would know that we are loved by you, that we would know that you can save us from our own sin, from our own tendencies to go astray and to not follow you. Lord, we thank you that you can intervene and that you can bring us into your kingdom and that you can rescue us for eternity with you. Lord, may we know this and may we worship you because of it. We pray these things in your name.